Welcome to the Kings and Queens podcast with your host, Johnny Langton. On a cold day in 1308, the country welcomed back the newly married and soon-to-be crowned King and Queen of England at Dover. The King had just married a French princess. With the utmost joy, he jumped off the ship and without waiting for his wife, he ran straight for the love of his life. He jumped into the arms of Piers Gaveston, the Earl of Cornwall, and kissed him repeatedly to the utter dismay of the crowd watching. His reign was plagued with military and political incompetence. He was concerned not with the deeds of chivalry, but in fulfilling his own desires. So dangerous were the men he allowed to control him, that it bred a sinister and violent culture not seen in England for centuries. This is Edward II. Edward was born in Carnarfon Castle on the 25th of April, 1284. He was the 16th child of King Edward I and Queen Eleanor. Incredibly, Due to the number of daughters born and the deaths of siblings, Edward became the heir at just four months old. Suddenly, the focus was on the baby prince. As he grew into a man, he carried all the physical attributes of his father. He was tall, strong and handsome. He was said to have been fair of body and great of strength, but little of brain. He accompanied his father on campaigns but was considered lazy, indecisive and a poor leader. In fact, he was so unlike his father that some even questioned his paternity. His hobbies were most unusual for a royal. He enjoyed plays, music, and the arts. But he also liked swimming, rowing, and digging ditches. These were considered lowly pursuits. He even bought food from peasants to make soup. This man was made Prince of Wales in 1301 at the age of 17 the first of a long and surviving line of heirs to the English throne. Edward and the nobles were acutely aware of the danger as the prince was edging closer and closer to the crown. The prince seemed dangerously unfit for kingship. The king decided that the young prince needed a role model. He needed a man who reflected himself, a gracious, refined, chivalric knight, to divert the prince from his degenerate path. He chose Piers Gaveston. The pair quickly formed a deep emotional bond. The pair were so close that the prince constantly pushed peers for political influence. The prince was utterly besotted. He apparently couldn't even concentrate in his presence. The barons grew concerned at the level of favouritism. Lessons from history, in particular the prince's grandfather Henry III, had taught them the peril of baronial partiality. The young prince was quickly bedeviled with quarrels with the barons who were disturbed by his relationship with Gaveston. Opinions spread that the prince's relationship with Gaveston was sexual. A contemporary chronicler reported that the prince delighted in the vice of sodomy. King Edward was cautious. Perhaps a verse from Christopher Marlowe's Elizabethan play describes the situation well. Let his grace, whose youth is flexible and promiseth as much as we can wish, Freely enjoy that vain, light-hearted earl, for riper years will wean him from such toys. 
In February 1307, the ageing king was approached by his son. He wanted to grant Gaveston the county of Pontio. The king, known for his explosive temper, blew. You bastard, son of a bitch. You want to give lands away? You, who never gained any? Were it not for fear of breaking up the kingdom, you would never be able to enjoy your inheritance. The king attacked his son, tearing out clumps of his hair before kicking him out of his chamber. The prince had gone too far, but he would by no means learn his lesson. The king ordered the exile of Piers Gaveston, and he returned to Gascony. The prince accompanied Gaveston to Dover and gifted him with a huge sum of £260, along with numerous luxury items. It was hardly a humbling banishment. Just a few months later, on the 7th of July 1307, while marching to Scotland to face Robert the Bruce, who had crowned himself king, King Edward I died. His request had been to display his body at the front of a conquering English army to terrify the Scottish dissidents. The new King Edward II would not fulfil such a request. In fact, he abandoned the campaign in its entirety. Instead, he immediately recalled Piers Gaveston to his court. Now he was in charge, there would be very little restraint in his favouritism. The youngest son of a minor Gascon noble, Piers Gaveston, was made Earl of Cornwall, a position almost always reserved for royal blood. He was also betrothed to the king's niece. This all resulted in immense power and land, with an annual income of over £4,000. He was one of the richest men in the country. His influence over the king was unparalleled. He alone found favour in the king's eyes and lorded it over the barons. All were to be subject and non-equal. Yet again, Magna Carta had been wildly breached. Gaveston was insufferably arrogant and soon became the baron's prime source of hatred and rancour and his name was reviled far and wide. The new king was known to completely ignore advice from the barons, relying on one man alone. It was becoming clear that the king and Gaveston were perhaps engaged physically. The barons were probably less content with their weaning power than the ostensible homosexual relationship. In 1308, the 23-year-old king was quickly married to a 12-year-old princess, Isabella, the daughter of the king of France. While the king was away at his wedding, Gaveston was made keeper of the realm, another example of his growing influence. When they returned, the coronation of Edward II took place on the 25th of February, 1308. Piers Gaveston had the job of directing the entire event. He put himself front and centre. The gasps of horror must have filled Westminster Abbey when Gaveston, adorned in royal purple trimmed with pearls, carried the crown of Saint Edward the Confessor. This breach of protocol was so gravely offensive that one baron had to be restrained from attacking Gaveston in fury. The melee caused a stampede, killing a knight. The banquet was no better. It was apparently deliberately sabotaged by the cooks, who loathed Gaveston. The food was late and inedible. The walls of the hall were draped with tapestries, emblazoned with the king's coat of arms. They should have been joined by the queen's own coat, 
but instead were draped with the coat of arms of Gaveston, adding to the humiliation of the French contingent in attendance. During the feast, the king sat beside Gaveston and spoke to no one else, not even his wife. While a 23-year-old would have little to say to a 12-year-old girl, the minutest of decorum may have sufficed. Instead, the king fawned over Gaveston throughout the feast. He was even given the queen's jewellery to wear. Their overtly flirtatious behaviour and neglect of the 12-year-old queen alarmed the star-studded crowd. The uncles of Isabella were so incensed, they stormed out. The king and Gaveston, however, were either indifferent or blissfully unaware of their shameful antics. Soon the king's honeymoon period of baronial lenience was over. A host of anti-Gaveston nobles approached the king in April 1308. They judged the king's favourite a robber of the people, a traitor to his liege, lord and his realm. The barons pledged loyalty, not to the individual, but to the crown. The crown they claimed that Gaveston sought to impoverish. Without support on his side, the king was forced to exile Gaveston and strip him of his land. He was sent to Ireland as a lieutenant. Instead of moving on, the king put all his efforts into schmoozing the barons with offers of money and land in order to restore Gaveston to his side. A year later, on the 27th of June 1309, Piers Gaveston returned to England and to Edward's side. His land was restored immediately. Gaveston had not been humbled. He was even less tactful and gracious. He looked down on all with supercilious countenance. He created insulting nicknames for all the barons. He had permanent access to the king's bedchamber and he rinsed the treasury. The king refused to conduct any business without the presence of Gaveston. He had become the second king. It didn't take long for baronial unrest to boil over once more. Some refused to attend Parliament in protest, claiming that as long as their chief enemy lurked in the king's bedchamber, their approach would be unsafe. In 1311, ordinances were drafted by a 21-member baronial committee, demanding Gaveston's exile once more. They also demanded curtailments of the king's power over finances and appointments. The king accepted 40 of the 41 articles. The one he didn't, unsurprisingly, was the one that claimed Gaveston had led the king astray, was a public enemy who counselled him in nothing but evil. The king saw this as merely a personal attack, but this time the barons would not bend. They warned the king that he might, through imprudence, be deprived of his throne. The king was powerless to prevent Gaveston's third exile in November 1311. He was also excommunicated. Incredibly, at the Christmas court just weeks later, Gaveston stood shamelessly in the open at the king's side once more. The barons took up arms, and the king and Gaveston were forced to flee. The most hardened rebel baron was the king's cousin, Thomas, Earl of Lancaster. He possessed five earldoms, and was incredibly wealthy, with a private army to rival the kings. This is the force that pursued the couple. They were separated. Gaveston was soon captured and taken to Scarborough Castle by a moderate noble, who began to organise negotiations. 
The hardened nobles discovered this and approached the castle in secret. They seized him and triumphantly marched the prisoner with trumpets blaring all the way to Warwick. There, Gaveston was surrounded by his most fervent enemies. He was scrutinised by a kangaroo court, a mock trial, led by Lancaster. Though they had no authority to do so, they sentenced him to death. On the 19th of June, 1312, he was led to Blacklow Hill. He was run through with a sword and beheaded. His head was presented as proof to Lancaster, while his body was abandoned where it was struck down. Due to his excommunication, he couldn't be buried. The distraught Edward wouldn't be parted from a rotten corpse for weeks. It was dressed in 300 pounds silk, embalmed and guarded until burial. That day would not come for two and a half years. Edward would never forgive his cousin Lancaster for executing his man and sought to avenge him when he had the power to do so. But now was not the time. With Gaveston dead, Edward would focus on the direct challenge that faced his father in his dying days, Robert the Bruce. For years, Edward I had hammered Scotland and oppressed its people. He had worked endlessly, travelling up and down Britain to quell revolts and brutalise dissenters. Now, in the absence of the King of England, Bruce had crowned himself King of Scots and was quickly uniting the people and eliminating the English occupiers. His task was almost complete. With no one in sight to hamper his campaign, he had begun to encroach upon English territory. Territory that had been lost to the English in the past. Edward II needed to assert his authority. He assembled a gigantic army of between 20 and 30,000 troops in the summer of 1314. The most rebellious barons, including Lancaster, had refused to send their full armies sending only a fraction that was obliged of them by law. It goes to show just how powerful the English could have been if united. But they were not united, and even the force assembled was divided and undisciplined. Even still, the sight of a largest army in living memory must have instilled huge confidence in Edward. He would face a force that was inferior in numbers, but far superior in spirit, loyalty, experience and leadership, united under a cause worth dying for. On the 24th of June 1314, Edward led his force through a narrow valley outside of Bannockburn, where in the distance they saw the Scottish Shiltrans, the shield and spear coated circles, the hedgehogs, that had humiliated the English at the Battle of Stirling Bridge. A lone horseman was perched on a hill, unprotected, staring down at the mighty English army. It was Robert the Bruce. Filled with sudden pride and zeal, a young, inexperienced commander called Henry de Bone galloped forward to chop the head off the snake of the Scottish resistance. He charged with his lance. Bruce was unmoved. At the last moment, just as de Bone was feet away, aiming for his head, Bruce manoeuvred out of the way and planted an axe in the young commander's head, splitting it in two. The scene was set. Before battle commenced, the Scots broke their shiltrons and knelt down, firm and silent. 
Edward quipped, they pray for mercy. An attendant replied, you are right, they pray for mercy, but not from you. They cry to God for forgiveness. Yonder men will live or die, none shall flee for fear of death. The armies clashed. Just like at Stirling Bridge, the English cavalry were repelled by the Shiltrons as they were slowed on the boggy terrain of Bannockburn. The longbowmen were told to stop firing as they were inadvertently killing their own men. The English were failing to weaken the Shiltrons and were pushed further and further back, suffering heavy casualties. Edward joined the thick of the battle. When he lost his sword and his horse, he was surrounded by baying Scots. He suddenly wielded a mace and was able to get out of trouble. But the battle was lost. The king was dragged to safety by Gilles d'Argenton, one of the greatest and most feared knights in Christendom, the William Marshal of his day. He said to the exhausted king, Sire, your protection was committed to me, but since you are safely on your way, I will bid you farewell, for never have I fled from the battle, nor will I now. He turned back and charged at the bone-crunching Shiltrons. There he was slain. The king lost two-thirds of his men and was utterly humiliated. He returned to England defeated to face the distant faction led by Lancaster, the ones who had refused to aid him at Bannockburn. Now with the king's reputation in tatters and his army depleted, they could exert full control over the country. Lancaster, whose private army was largely untouched, became the de facto ruler of England. The king was at his mercy. Like his grandfather, Henry III, 50 years before, he was now just a figurehead. During the four years of Lancaster ruling alongside a council, the country suffered from appalling weather conditions, resulting in 80% reduction of crop harvests, rampant disease and famine. Lancaster proved just as incapable a leader as Edward, and soon had diminished authority. He failed to sow divisions just like Simon de Montfort. Meanwhile, the King of the Scots, Robert the Bruce, took full advantage of division in the south, and mustered an army to invade English-controlled Ireland. They then took the northern town of Berwick, that had been in English hands since Edward I. It was a symbolic victory for the Scots. Lancaster and the King would unite for the common cause of defeating the Scots, and besieged Berwick in 1319. Yet it would be another huge failure, as Edward proved incompetent. Bruce claimed that there was more to fear from the bones of Edward I than the living Edward II. When the English gave up, it was a sign that Scotland, now, was truly independent once more. During the siege, Lancaster and Edward had a huge falling out. Edward told an attendant, when this wretched business is over, we will turn our hands to other matters, for I have not forgotten the wrong that was done to my brother, Piers Gaveston. The tide was about to turn. Edward's power was still curbed by the council. 
However, he was beginning to show signs that he was capable of political expediency by marshalling allies, and by 1318 was in a position to reassert the authority that he lost after Bannockburn. He did this with the help of two men, father and son, called the Dispensers. His tactics were familiar. Reckless favouritism. The Dispensers had actually been at court for years, but were only now being given preferential treatment. In comparison to Gaveston, the Dispensers were much more cunning, deceitful, and depraved. They had wormed their way into the king's favour. Dispenser Junior took the position of the king's chamberlain. No one sees the king without his permission. In fact, no one besides his father was ever allowed in. It also meant that he could control what the king knew. The barons were stirring once more. The king was proving susceptible still to the blandishments of an avaricious favourite. The dispensers were becoming as unpopular as Gaveston. The queen was now a grown woman. She began to feel the effect of a wedge being driven between her and her husband. Now she was not the soft touch of a teenage girl, but a formidable figure. In 1314, back in France, Isabella had discovered that her sisters-in-law were having affairs unknown to her brothers. Isabella informed her father, the king. The sisters-in-law were imprisoned. The treatment of their lovers was reprehensible. They were castrated, tied to a wheel, and beaten with clubs. They were then flayed alive, quartered, and beheaded. Queen Isabella was no longer a passive girl. Isabella the Fair was now called Isabella the She-Wolf. Edward should have been aware of making an enemy out of the Queen of England and Princess of France. For now, she was loyal, claiming the king was beyond reproach. The barons did not share that opinion. When the rapacious dispensers confiscated land from the marcher lords in 1321, it sparked civil war. Forces were led by Lancaster and Roger Mortimer, a relative of the Mortimer who had killed Simon de Montfort. The group called the Contrarians faced off against the Royalists. It was the Contrarians' camp that proved more divided. In March 1322, Roger Mortimer and Lancaster were captured. Lancaster was given a mock trial and beheaded. It was sweet for the king who had waited 11 years to avenge Piers Gaveston by defeating his cousin. The king had shown political nous in regaining control of his kingdom. Lancaster was the most powerful noble executed since before the Norman Conquest. Ultimately, no one was safe. However, for now, Roger Mortimer was. He was not executed. He was given life imprisonment, something the king would live to regret. What followed the end of the Dispenser War was a frenzied wave of executions of traitors, some claim in the hundreds. It was the precursor to a spiteful, vengeful reign of tyranny. Edward and the Dispensers enriched themselves with scant regard for law and justice. In doing so, they completely alienated and antagonised all in their wake. The Dispensers controlled patronage, demanded bribes, and adopted cruel and wicked tactics to procure land such as targeting widows. A contemporary described the despotic government. O oh, calamity! 
to see men so recently clothed in purple and fine linen, now tied in rags, bound and imprisoned in chains, was a marvellous sight to see. Yes, there were individuals who remained loyal. Yet the harshness of the king increased so much that no one dared cross him. The barons must now have seen Gaveston as an irksome pest in comparison to the dangerous, nefarious dispensers. When tensions with the French heated up, the dispensers took the opportunity to damage the reputation of their rival for the king's affection, the queen. As a French princess, the dispensers labelled her an enemy of the state, confiscated her land, and took custody of their children, with the exception of her eldest. The king was so pliant that he let it happen, but the issue of the French was not going away. The barons may well have looked over to the English Channel for support, often done in the face of tyranny on their own shores. The French demanded that Edward pay homage for Gascony, while his father, Edward I, had swallowed his pride and shrewdly complied. Edward II repeatedly refused and delayed. He sent the Queen as a sensible negotiator in 1324. She encouraged the King to send over his son and heir, also called Edward, to pay homage instead. He agreed. This was Edward's biggest mistake. When it was time for the Queen to return to England, she refused. I declare that I will not return until this intruder, Dispenser Junior, is removed. But discarding my marriage garment shall put on the robes of widowhood and mourning until I am avenged of this Pharisee. So she wore black robes and a veil. The Queen must have known Edward would not give up his chief ally. Instead, he merely offered her confiscated lands back. But with the heir to the throne by her side, the Queen had leverage. Then she met Roger Mortimer. He had escaped prison by drugging his jailers and fled to France. They became lovers. A Queen cheating on a King of England openly was completely unprecedented and it was utterly scandalous. So unpopular was Edward, however, it didn't seem to make a difference when drumming up support. Now the Queen sought to oust her husband. The relationship with Mortimer seemed to be motivated by power as the two schemed together to bring about the downfall of Edward. First, they betrothed Prince Edward to Philippa of Hainault in order to acquire troops. Then, in 1326, with a force no larger than 1,500 mercenaries, invaded England. The king had more than enough troops to handle such a paltry invasion force. Yet due to the harrowing rule of Edward and the dispensers, the queen was met with a flurry of eager defectors. In fact, the king was deserted. It was the beginning of the end. Along with the dispensers, they fled to Wales. In October, Dispenser Senior was captured. No mercy would be given to the 65-year-old. He was hanged, drawn and quartered, and fed to the dogs. In November, it was the arch-enemy's turn, Dispenser Junior. He was captured and put on trial. The judge was the Queen, the woman he had humiliated and elbowed out of the King's chamber. The she-wolf treated him with the same level of dignity he bestowed upon his enemies. He was found guilty of high treason. He was stripped naked and dragged through the streets of Hereford. <laughs> Edward 
Special 50-foot gallows were built so the baying crowd would have no problem witnessing the violence. He was hanged, his testicles cut off and burnt in front of him. He was then gutted, while still alive, before being beheaded. It was the most vicious of executions, something which would never have been subjected to a highborn by the Norman kings. This level of brutality was becoming normal. One man was left. The country was not about to execute a king in such brutal fashion. But what would they do with him? There was no established procedure for removing a king. In January 1327, Parliament accepted a damning indictment into Edward's reign. He was judged to be incorrigible without hope of amendment. Edward was told to abdicate. He was of course reluctant. It was only with the threat of his son being disinherited that he finally relinquished the crown. On the 21st of January 1327, Edward became the first English monarch to abdicate. He was replaced by his 14-year-old son. The former king was sent to a secure location, Barclay Castle. While his wife had helped dethrone him and had had an open affair, it is clear that their relationship was complex. Most of her rage was directed at the men who'd eliminated her influence. There was clearly still a connection. She still sent gifts to Edward while he was imprisoned. Mortimer was less forgiving. While alive, Edward was still a potential threat, and numerous attempts had been made to rescue him, chiefly by the Welsh, who had a long-standing feud with the Mortimers. Roger Mortimer was at the zenith of his power, being a guardian of the crown. He needed to act. What happened next was unclear. What most historians believe is that Mortimer gave the order to murder the former king, to murder him without a trace being left on the body. Legend has it, his rear end was impaled by a red-hot poker. A reference perhaps to his alleged sodomy. Some historians believe he died in less brutal fashion. There are a handful of historians who believe the king was allowed to quietly disappear replacing himself with a body double. Nevertheless, on the 23rd of September 1327, it was announced that the former king had died. He was buried at Gloucester Cathedral. Edward II was a terrible candidate for kingship. Inside an outer shell of physical grandeur, was a pitiful, callous figure, in compliance with the most wicked of men. Such was the similarity with his grandfather, Henry III. His reign too was one of culture and finery. He was a patron of Gothic architecture. He founded colleges at Oxford and Cambridge and commissioned highly regarded Psalters and Gospels. But ultimately, it is his utter ineptitude. It is the complete desertion of his people it is his surrender of the crown to his 14-year-old son. It is his murder that is firmly etched into history. Thank you for listening. Join us next time for Edward III. As always, you can follow us on Twitter at KingsQueensPod and on Facebook, the Kings and Queens Podcast. You can also send an email in if you have a question to thekingsandqueenspodcast at gmail.com.
Thank you and see you next time.